Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. In the most recent edition of Things That Make You Go Hum, I took a look at recent moves by Xi Jinping to consolidate power in China. And I offered some perspectives on those moves based on the experience I've garnered over the last 35 years of living and investing in Asia. One of the first emails I received after publishing my letter was from my friend Louis Garve, who politely, I've got to say, and oh so delicately explained to me why so much of what I'd written was wrong. So I immediately contacted Louis to see if he'd be willing to shame me in public, and I'm delighted to say that he agreed. Louis spent many years living in Hong Kong, building his firm GavCal into one of, I mean, the most respected research firms in the region. And I'm always eager to hear his perspective on Asia in general, and China in particular, uh, as that perspective is never coloured by popular Western narratives to which those of us living outside the region are constantly subjected. Consequently, some in the West dismiss Louis' view as being coloured by his proximity to China. But I've got to say, I find that to be both lazy and self-defeating. The truth is, Louis has a deep understanding of China, and he isn't afraid to speak freely about those thoughts, something, frankly, for which we should all be grateful. We can disagree with his conclusions, but having his perspective is enormously valuable. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with my friend, Louis Garve. Uh, Louis, mate, so, so, so very good to see you. It's uh, It's been a while since we've seen each other in person, but it's good to see your smiling face on Zoom nonetheless. It's been way too long. You uh, you need to come visit. I know. I'm dying to do that, but uh, there's there's a few peculiarities about the Canadian border that make that a little bit of a dice rolling exercise. If you get, well, they're, if you get re- a- they're reopening. They're reopening now. You can come ski this winter, I think. Oh, you can? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Okay, so well, I will come and see you. I will come and see you. Perfect. Well, look, um, what we're here to talk about today is China. And you very kindly sent me an email the other day, which is one of the emails <laughs> that, I, that I love. No, but I, I love receiving this. You, you were so polite about it. You said, listen, I hope you don't take this the wrong way. But, and then as soon as you read an email that starts like that, you write, roll your sleeves and go, okay, what's coming? <laughs> and you very carefully and, and very um, surgically picked apart my last piece on China. <laughs> and the subtext of it was you're an idiot, and I, I was, <laughs> no. I was, very, no, I know, but, but no, and I thought, you know what? What a perfect chance to hear the other side to that in public. I mean, I don't want to write something and then quietly have a word and realize that I've got a load of stuff wrong and lick up, you know, crawl over to the corner and not tell anyone about it. So I think it's just a perfect chance for you and I to chat and get another perspective on China from someone who, let, let's face it, has a much, much, much better handle on it than I do, and has spent more time there in recent years than I have. So, um, so, so let, let's, you know, the, the, the thrust of my piece was really uh, aimed around Xi Jinping and, and the moves he's making and the things he's doing. And a lot of which I understand is subject to Western reporting standards and Western reporting narrative. But let's kind of kick off with Xi and get a sense of who he really is and what he's really trying to achieve over there. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's great to catch up. And I think you're right. Look, one of the big challenges today, partly in covering China, is you can't go there anymore. Um, <laughs> right. so, so, you know, going over there and sort of kicking the wheels and having locals impressions, etc. It's, uh, it's now much harder. Having said that, as a result of this, you know, a lot of people look at what's been unfolding in China 
And the easy conclusion is the one you come to, which is, oh, you know, she is a new Mao Zedong or she is the new Stalin. And you basically fall back on this. Well, she does evil things, therefore he is evil. And because he is evil, he does evil things. And, right, right. and, and but to me, that's both a little simplistic and it doesn't take us very far, right? Because the reality is we could say, all right, Stalin is, is evil and we're just going to ignore him. Uh, he does his evil things over there. We don't really have that option with China. You know, China is integrated in the global supply chain in the way that the Soviet Union never was. China is the world's second largest economy, you know, by a long shot. And so the whole like, oh, well, she's evil. So let's ignore what's happening over there. To me, falls short. And that's why I gave you grief yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, that, in that email. Like, we don't have that choice. We don't have the choice of saying, like, he's, he's the new Mao. I also think, to be honest, that that assessment is wrong. And you might know the old Steve Martin quote that... Uh, you know, before you criticize someone, you have to walk a mile in their shoes like this. When you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. Uh, so, you know, if before we criticize Xi, let, let, maybe we walk a mile in his shoes. And I think if you're Xi Jinping, the most traumatic event by a long shot of the past decade, it's not COVID. It's not Evergrande. It's not Hua Huang. Forget all that stuff. That's, that's peanuts. The most traumatic event by far was the takedown of Huawei. You know, Huawei was their pride and joy. It was their industrial jewel. It was really the first Chinese brand. You know, here was a company that was taking on Western companies at the pinnacle of the technology spectrum and winning, winning contracts. Right. And basically what happens, you know, in the Chinese framework and the Chinese view is Tim Cook goes to visit the White House and 72 hours later, Donald Trump morphs what was a trade war into a tech war and basically obliterates Huawei out of the water. And within basically three months, their industrial jewel is roadkill. And they stand by and they can't do anything about it. So this was, I think, deeply traumatic. And a lot of what's happened since then, I think, is marked by that event. And by the way, nothing that the U.S. today does. So you could say, well, they're just being paranoid and uh, China's being paranoid, et cetera. But nothing that the U.S. has done since then sort of helps dissipate this paranoia. Look at just last week, last Tuesday, U.S. Commerce Secretary Raimundo came out and said that it was now U.S. policy to try to basically stop China developing technologically. Now, I mean, who's like, they might think that, right. but that's the bit you don't say out loud, right? Yeah. Um, it's, you, you know, you might say that with a country with whom you're at war, but to say that your aim, the exact quote was to sp uh, stop the pace of innovation in China. If you're China, you're like, well, hold on. Like, imagine if Liu He came out and said, it is China's goal to stop the pace of innovation in the US. Yeah. Like, what would be the outroar? In, in the US, right? So it's the same thing going on in China. Right now, the view is they're out to get us. So if you're Xi Jinping and your view is these guys are out to get me, then from there, you really have to look at your own weaknesses. And China has three massive weaknesses. One of them is semiconductors, and that's how they took down Huawei. Yeah. The other is basically China's energy imports, whether oil or coal, through the seas that are controlled by the US. And the third is the continued dependency on the U.S. dollar. And I think everything you've seen since then from China inscribes itself 
and the need to deal with these three weaknesses. So for example, we can talk about the tech crackdown, but the tech crackdown inscribes itself in dealing with the semiconductor issue. In essence, what China has been trying to do is rope in the Alibaba, the Tencent, et cetera, and telling, getting these guys in the room three years ago and saying, look, guys, the US is out to get us. You need to do national service. Forget hiring the best young engineers and having them figure out how to better put ads on puppy videos. That was nice then, but now, now we need to have our smartest guys working on building semiconductors. And that's what you guys need to do. And the reality is Tencent and Alibaba said, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. And until basically this summer when the Chinese government showed it meant business. I mean, it's a little bit, you know, at the time, uh, you know, when uh, at the Manhattan Project, imagine during the Manhattan Project, if Roosevelt had called the best scientists, in, uh, well, he did, called the best scientists at MIT, Princeton, et cetera, and said, by the way, you're moving to New Mexico and you're going to work on this nuclear project. If the guys had said, well, now I got this other thing going on right now, right. <laughs> the, yeah. you know, it just wouldn't have gone down well. This is the framework of Xi Jinping and how he's dealing with this. So when Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera, said, well, no, I'd rather, you know, develop video games. You know, Xi Jinping says, I don't think you understood me. Um, right. the, this, isn't, this isn't a question of, as to whether you want it. This is like you're doing this. Now, of course, as shareholders, this is not good news. You know, basically big tech in China is being called upon to do national service. And this is probably not why you wanted to own the shares to do national yeah, service. Yeah, yeah. So I, the, the derating makes perfect sense. But um, so that and then if you look at, let's say, the Hong Kong takeover, um, you know, if the, you think the U.S. is out to get you, your biggest weakness, if you're China, is your continued dependency on the U.S. dollar, right? Uh, the fact that all of your trade depends or most of your trade depends on, on the U.S. dollar and that you, in essence, have to de-dollarize your trade as quickly as you can. And so what you do is you make sure that the renminbi is a strong currency. And by the way, amidst all this debacle, the renminbi is up for the year. Yep. You know, that's amidst all this debacle. The RMB bond market is up 5% for the year. It, it continues year after year to outperform every bond market. Um, now, when have you ever seen this in an emerging market? You know, the stock market goes down 40% and the currency is up and the bond market is up. Yep. That doesn't no, typically happen in emerging markets. Um, but, and that's where, you know, the, the Hong Kong thing comes in. If you feel, okay, the US is coming after me and it's going to cut me off its capital markets which is obviously happening, China's getting cut off from New York, then I have to have my own capital markets. And because these guys are control freaks, then they, you know, they've got Hong Kong right there, so they take that over. And, um, but perhaps the one that people are focusing the least on, which is the most important, or at least the most important right now, was China's decision a couple of years ago to go peak carbon. Now, when Xi Jinping announced China's going to go peak carbon, you know, I think most people didn't pay that much attention to it. No, because true. Because everybody said we're going peak carbon, right? It's like, it's in the flavor of the days. Everybody's saying they go peak carbon. The big difference is that when Western politicians say they're going to do something, it doesn't mean they're going to do something. When Chinese politicians say they're going to do something, you know, they have a good track record of saying what they do and doing what they say. And the reason I think they want peak carbon isn't because all of a sudden they become green and they care about the environment. It's, you know, first and foremost, because they worry about having so much energy imported from places that are, in essence, controlled by the U.S. Hence the decision to say, you know what, we're stopping importing coal from Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so once you get there, you think, okay, 
So that's China's policy now. Now, you know, Charlie Munger saying, show me the incentives and I'll tell you the outcome. If you're the mayor of Chongqing or the governor of Jiangsu, and you're told, you know what, you're no longer being ranked on how much growth you deliver, but on how much carbon you spew out in the air. Well, guess what happens? Growth slows down and you stop spewing out carbon in the air because that's what that's what you're being measured yeah, on now. Yeah. So, you know, most people looked at this and thought, okay, great news. I'm going to go out and buy solar panel makers and I'm going to go out and buy, you know, windmills and whatever else. And, and all these things went to, to crazy valuations. But there's many more investment consequences. Now, one of them is that if China really goes down this path, there isn't enough copper, there isn't enough lithium, et cetera. And the market did start to move that way. But the other obvious consequences is if you're a coal miner, if you're a natural gas producer, if you're an oil producer, and you're told, well, your single biggest client is moving away from you, then obviously you're not going to do any capital spending whatsoever. Right. So cue today's shortages. And that brings you to the last point is if China is serious about decarbonizing, what does that mean? That means that a lot of the things that China used to do, like produce steel in China, produce aluminum, produce petrochemicals, that's no longer going to get done. Uh, and cues today's shortages in absolutely everything. And so, you know, a lot of what's happening today in the world, we can say, oh, well, you know, it's because Xi Jinping's an asshole. But really, that doesn't exp explain the, the depth of the consequences of these policies. The biggest consequence of it all is that China for, you know, our entire careers, you and I, was always a provider of excess capacity in the world. Yeah. Um, because every business model was on a too big to fail. Everybody was trying to get big. By getting big, you would survive, et cetera. What's very clear today is that the business model in China has changed. It's no longer too big to fail. It's now small is beautiful. Like you want to be small enough that you're below the radar of the yeah. government regulators. That means no more excess capital spending. That means no more excess production. So China for the world is going to deliver a lot less growth and a lot less deflation. So we're moving in essence, and this has been a big theme in my research for the past year, we've moved from the, you know, the age of globalization and the age of excess Chinese capital spending, which was an age of plenty, to the age of shortages. And so if you think that you know, today's shortages are just a short term in nature, I think you've completely misread the political situation in China. Well, you know, there's, there's so much to unpack there, and, and this is why it's Sorry. always so fascinating. No, 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 it's, no, it's, no, no, yeah. <laughs> no, it's great because it, 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 this is why these conversations are so interesting because we could take this in any number of different directions, and each one leads to you know down a path of discovery for me. So I, I'll just try and get to as many of them as I can. But um, you know, I look at Xi Jinping as two people. There's the man, and there is the president of the country, and to try and split up which is a characteristic of the man and which is a characteristic of a man trying to keep control of and grow a, a 1.4 billion person uh, economy that is going to run also into demographic challenges in the next 20 years. Um, so some of the recent studies that come out are talking about the population halving by 2050. I, I haven't read that study yet. I, there's some scary numbers coming out. So if, when we put ourselves in Xi Jinping's position, how much of what he's done, particularly with the, the more personal stuff like disappearing Jack Ma for a while and cancelling the actresses. And, you know, there are, there are all kinds of things that seem to be personal grabs for consolidation of power and, and to delineate him as 
the guy you don't mess with. And how much of that is is not so much iron fist, but this is what the country needs me to do right now. Because it, it's tough to have this conversation because everyone's already picked a side, which is why I love having a conversation with someone like you who has a completely different perspective to me. And I know what I think, but I'm always willing to listen to someone I know has a better on the ground feel for it for me. So, so how, how do we break those, those dynamics down into the man and the, and the leader? Well, my starting point is I think, you know, their framework, and you could say it's a paranoid framework. And I, and I would, you know, I think that'd be a fair assessment, but again, their framework is they're basically on a war footing. Now it's not a war footing in that they think, you know, we're about to like shoot at each with the yeah. U S but their view again, is the U.S. is out to get us. The U.S. is out to, to take us down. Now, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, you mentioned the demographic uh, transition that China is undergoing. And that's been another extremely important development this year. Was, you know, February, you had the release of the census. And the census really showed two things that are very related. Uh, the first was that China was aging much faster than they'd expected. And the second, this was partly because China is actually urbanized much faster right. than expected. And so, which incidentally helps to explain why real estate was so resilient. You know, for 10 years, people were going around saying, oh, you know, they're building too much. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be all this success capacity, you know, ghost cities, yada, yada, yada. Well, turns out that actually, you know, the ghost cities of yesterday's are now full and that they weren't building too much. They were, there was just undercounting of the, the urban population. Now, why does this matter? It matters tremendously because this is what drives policy. You know, most people think that when they look at the Chinese leaders, that they get the legitimacy from their ability to deliver economic growth. That's actually not true. They get the legitimacy from delivering social stability. Uh, right, because, right. you know, if China basically from 1850, the Taiping Rebellion to 1976, the end of the Cultural Revolution, was the most miserable place on earth to live in. I mean, you know, you had famines. Well, there's Cleveland. Had, Don't forget, there's Cleveland. Yeah, there's You've Cleveland, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, you, you had, you know, but you had, you know, famines and, uh, you know, civil wars and foreign invasions. I mean, you name it, the plagues, you name it, they had it. So social stability comes at a big, big premium. And so, you know, the big challenge for them basically over the past 20, 30 years, was you had 20 million guys leaving the farm to go to the city every year, right? And the rule of thumb was, if you deliver 8% growth, that creates 20 million jobs. So, so that's the problem solved. Hence, the acceptance of business models that basically allowed for swelling of balance sheets, that you know it was just take on debt to add capacity, even if you don't need the capacity over time, it'll get sorted. And that was the business model. Today, what we now know is that instead of adding 15 to 20 million workers a year into the system, China is actually now shrinking its workforce. Already last year, China lost roughly 3 million workers. By 2025, which is tomorrow, they'll be losing eight to 10 million workers. So that's a dramatic shift. So yeah. already, you know, the, the first thing that we have to acknowledge as global investors is that the source of China as a constant excess source of labor is over. So if your business model, if you're Apple and your business model is, I go out and, you know, I hire indirectly through Foxconn 500,000 workers in China, that business model is going to be threatened. Or right. you, you got to shift it to India or to Vietnam or, or somewhere, but are you going to get the same productivity? Basically, any business model today that requires armies of workers and a lot of cheap energy, 
whether you're Amazon, whether you're Walmart, whether you're Apple, those business models are, I think, very much under threat because, again, we're not going to have a shortage of energy and a shortage of worker. Uh, so yeah. you're going to be competing heavily for both. Now, if you're the Chinese Communist Party and if you're Xi Jinping and you think, okay, I'm moving from too many workers to, to not enough, the U.S. is out to get me, so I change the business model. And again, that leaves you with a China that, uh, that grows a, you know, a, a lot less fast. Yeah. Um, now, on, on top of this, yeah, you can look at, at some, of these, some of these other measures, you know, going after you know, effeminate men on TV. Admittedly, it, it is a bit of a head scratcher. You can look at that in, in one of two ways. One of them is, in its own mind, China's on a war footing. And you know, they want to convey that through everything they do. So you have to be martial. You have to be manly. Yes. You have to be you know, rah-rah. Uh, option one. Option two, it's an effort. You know, China is trying to push the renminbi hard into emerging markets. You know, to basically transform emerging markets away from being a U.S. dollar zone to being a renminbi zone. And to do that, it has to basically differentiate itself from the United States. China is not trying to convince the French, the Germans, the Americans, the Brits to use the renminbi. They're trying to convince the Thais, the Indonesians, yeah, yeah. the Pakistanis and the Africans, etc. So is that a play, part of a play to the emerging markets of saying, hey, do you still trust the effeminate Americans to come to your rescue? Or do you want to go with us more martial? In a sense, it's interesting that you know this whole crackdown on effeminate men on TV occurred within a week of the US leaving Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, was it to sort of underscore that, you know, while, while you have a U.S. Army that today is more focused on transgender rights than winning battles, if do you still want to keep your reserves in U.S. dollars? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, when you, when you have these conversations, hearing someone like you who's had so much on the ground experience in China talk about how this is perceived in China – when you talk about them being on a war footing and feeling like the U.S. is out to get them, it's so interesting because obviously the, the the Western media, the narrative for different reasons is the Chinese are out to get us, right? It's it's the same, exactly the same narrative, but from a different perspective. And the war footing over here is not so much we're on a war footing, but the saber rattling in the Taiwan Strait, and you know that the, there there is there is a constant drumbeat that that China is is angling for war. And so, I, you know, I know when you have these conversations, because I've, I've kind of stood on the sidelines and watched some of them on Twitter and, and listened to some of the conversations you've had, it's obviously very easy for people to label you as you know, a China apologist, you know, which, I, which I, I always find laughable knowing you as I do, and perhaps I'm privileged to know you better than them. So I, I, I kind of see through that. How do you deal with that when you're trying to have these discussions and they're important discussions to have about the two most important nations on earth squaring up to each other for different reasons, but at the same time, how do you have that dialogue with people in a way that gets past that whole, ah, if you don't think China's 100% evil, you must be a China apologist? Because I know you and Kyle Bass are great friends, but you have completely differing viewpoints on things. How do those discussions go? Um, well, to be to be honest, I uh, well obviously I don't consider myself a China apologist. I consider myself no, a China I, analyst. No, and, no uh, and, and nor do I. But that's that's <laughs> the easiest thing to throw at you, right? To, to make it easy to ignore uh, what you have to say. But you know, the, the first thing is the first 
you know, easy way to avoid these conversations is just to avoid social media, which, which I generally do. <laughs> right, right. <Yes. laughs> I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I'm just like, I, I basically talk to the people who basically pay us to, <laughs> to talk to us. Right. Right. Um, and I talk to the people who, who invest with us now, you know, our, our starting point at GAFCAL is, you know, our, our mission statement is, you know, number one, we want to be useful to, to our clients. And, so I try to analyze China as best I can. And, you know, that's why we have an office in Beijing. That's why we have an office in Hong Kong. That's why we have 50 people doing this all day. My starting point is indeed China is extremely important and that it can't just be brushed off uh, because it's too important in the global system. And that, you know, we therefore have no choice but to try to understand it. And the understanding I take away today is that every policy uh, that, that China is following is to try to secure its independence from from the U.S. That this is this policy ends up being inflationary for the rest of the world. That this policy means most likely a very strong RMB will continue to unfold as it has uh, in the recent past. That the RMB bond market is a much better place to deploy capital than the uh, Chinese equity market, which has been the argument we've made time and time again. Yeah. And behind this lies a simple reality of any economy, China or any other any other economy, is that. Take any economy, and really, there's two people that matter. One is the entrepreneur; he's the one who creates the growth, and he's the one who you know get picks up the ball and gets the ball moving. And the other is the rentier, uh, the rentier who tries to get a return of and a return on capital. He's the one who provides the ball. The entrepreneur moves the ball. Yeah. The, the rentier provides the ball. And then on top of these two, you have a central bank who's supposed to be sort of the referee between the two, but it's very hard to be neutral between the two and various central banks historically will favor one or the other. So when I started in this business, I was told, you know, when you don't know what to do, you buy equities in the U S because the fed will always favor the equity owner and you buy boons in Germany because the Bundesbank will always follow, uh, favor the bondholder. Well, today the Bundesbank is dead. Uh, it's been, yeah. it's been sacrificed on the altar of the Euro. The PBOC what investors have to understand is the PBOC is the new Bundesbank. So today, when you don't know what to do, you buy equities in the U.S. and you buy bonds in China. Um, and if you do that, if you've done that for the past 10 years, you've had terrific returns. Yep. And I think you'll continue to have you know, decent returns doing this. Now, this isn't, you know, this isn't being a China apologist. Um, it, I, I would say the question of China apologist is it all depends you know, what you think your job is. If you think your job is to try to make money for your clients then that brings you to China bonds. If yep. you think your job is to try to influence policy, uh, if you think your job is to try to get time on TV and get uh, and get uh, social media following, et cetera, then you can go out and bash China all day and, you, and, you'll have, and, and you'll have great success doing that. But the reality is, okay, what is our job? I think you know, my job is to try to make money for clients as best I can. Yeah, no, it's it's so true, and, and you know everything about China has become politicized. You know, and 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 uh, Bill Fleckenstein and I had a conversation with Kyle about this, and you know, look, and Kyle makes some great points about this. There's a lot of a lot of what he says has a, a lot to it, but it, it, it the debate around China seems to now have galvanized along national lines, i.e. if you're American, you have to hate China. And if you're Chinese, you have to hate Americans. And, and that's kind of where we stand, which is, you know, which is a terrible shame. But when you look at what's happened 
recently, for example, in China with, with the Evergrande situation. You know, again, in the West, all the commentary has been about this is the butterfly flapping its wings, this is the domino that's finally going to topple everything over, and this is, you know, this is the start of X, Y, and Z. What's the perspective on the ground on Evergrande from a more Chinese perspective? Well, I think, you know, the, the first thing we have to acknowledge is Evergrande has failed because the government wanted it to fail. Right. right? Yeah. That's such so, an important point. So, um, you know, when everybody says, oh, this is China's Lehman crisis, et cetera, it's like, well, not exactly, because the U.S. government was trying to save Lehman. And when the U.S. government failed to save Lehman, everybody freaked out. You know, yeah. it was, you remember like Hank Paulson's bazooka. When yeah. it turns out the bazooka was a dud, then everybody flipped out. Here, the big difference, of course, is China is trying to, to take down Evergrande. And so, uh, now, from there, we can discuss that's a huge mistake by China to take down it by the government to take down Evergrande, or it's not. Um, yeah. And so, again, then you, you go back to let's put ourselves in Xi Jinping's shoes. Why would he try to take this down? You know, why would why would he take down one of the biggest property developers? Uh, and I think the answer here is is pretty simple. Is since 2017, the message has been, look, these days of excess capital spending, these days of borrowing too much, of leaning too far above your skis, it just doesn't fly anymore and you're going to be punished for it. Because when you do this, you put our entire sort of financial ecosystem at risk. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, China's, um, so this is, I think just like, you know, my view on Evergrande is just like they took down uh, the education sector to basically get big tech into line. Uh, you know the Chinese saying, "Kill the chicken to scare the monkeys." Um, they're doing they're doing the same thing with Evergrande. Now, you know the the likely outcome out of Evergrande is it gets broken up, um, equity holders get wiped out, bondholders get wiped out, and various property developers pick up the pieces so that all the people who bought uh, the um, all the suppliers to Evergrande plus all the people who bought the apartments don't end up losing money. Um, and and the message will have been passed on. Now, beyond that, let's not kid ourselves that this there will be a slowdown in real estate, no doubt. There will be a slowdown in economic activity in China, no doubt. But again, I think the, uh, you know, do we think the Chinese government doesn't know that? Of course they know that, right? Yeah. You'd have to you'd have to be a halfwit not not to know that. And it's obviously something that they want. And again, you know, why would they want that? Well, I go back to the, the three weaknesses they're trying to address: semiconductors, you know, too much carbon importing, and building out the renminbi as a credible reserve currency. Now, you know, having a runaway real estate market and having real estate developer that lean too far above their skis basically hurts you on two out of these three goals. It hurts you on the building the renminbi as a credible currency, and it hurts you on the uh, we want to import less carbon. So now. I think these business models that were leaning too far above their skis, they were allowed to endure as long as China needed to create jobs every year. Again, the labor force in China is now shrinking. That's the big lesson of the February census. So they don't have to worry about creating a bunch of jobs anymore. So guys like Evergrande that they ne never liked, but that they tolerated because they needed the jobs, they're now goners. You know, it's like, right. yeah, you know, we... We needed you. We don't need you anymore. Goodbye. And um, so, 
So I do believe Evergrande is a big deal. It shows a complete of that China is evolving towards very different business models. I, I don't want to belittle it. Uh, it is going to be less growth. It is going to be lots of things. But by no stretch we should think that this is this is an accident. This is wanted. You know, this is a plan for unfolding of events. Well, yeah. You know, again, it's so interesting because when you when you described what the the plan of action has been and will be for Evergrande. You know, I, I keep, I get this phrase stuck in my head, this idea of capitalism with Chinese characteristics, which has been banded around for a long, long time now, which is what they, they described the Chinese model as being. But of course, when the phrase was coined, they were talking about old style capitalism, capitalism, capitalism in its purest form with Chinese characteristics. And when you describe the way Evergrande is going to be worked out, i.e. equity holders get wiped out, bondholders get protected and They'll be wiped out too. So they won't even save yeah. the domestic bondholders at the expense of the overseas bondholders. I, I'd be surprised. But but I, again, I, that's capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah, that no, is that is capitalism. Yeah. And yet we, we look at this now and it seems an unlikely way for them. Yeah, everyone looks at it and says, well, there's no way they'll let that happen. Because capitalism <laughs> has been corrupted. It's not because the Chinese are doing something weird. No, it's because our understanding of capitalism is you save the equity holders, you save that you save everybody. The bank steps in and yeah. saves everybody. So on this, you know, if you're the Chinese government, you really have two choices here, right? It's okay. We can lean on the banks to lend to Evergrande and keep this party going. And uh, that's that's option one. Option two, we unwind this thing and losses where go where they have to go. And we make sure that basically, again, the small guy who bought his apartment and put his 20% down doesn't get wiped out because that'd be unfair to him. And, you know, the small glass manufacturer to never grant those money that he doesn't get wiped out either. Right. That'd be unfair. But in essence, everybody else, you know, t- takes the hit. Now, which is better for your currency is allowing bankruptcies and showing, look, there's consequences to actions. Isn't that better for your currency than to say, we're going to bail out each and every one uh, every time. So, you know, I think you're absolutely right that really since Lehman, we've been conditioned as investors in the Western world to think that bankruptcy is an absolute calamity, can't yeah. happen, it it creates disasters, et cetera. And I think partly because there's actually a misunderstanding of what Lehman really was. You know, people talk about the Lehman crisis because we like to put a name on things, but it wasn't just Lehman, right? It was- no widespread you know it was the entire us banking system had to be merged and saved you had you know aig going bust it was so you know it was it wasn't just lehman who went bust it was the entire system and so the bottom line here i think is you're absolutely right that china is you know letting evergrand go is the capitalist thing to do it is. Yeah, yeah and, it really is. And, you know, bailing everybody out as we're doing, as we've done through COVID, you know, I think the the airlines, uh, the, the whole airline yeah. sector have not, have, has now lost, what, $200 billion yeah. uh, uh, over the past year. How many bankruptcies in the airline sector? Yeah. How many exactly. bankruptcies in the past year in the airlines? Now we could say, well, it's not fair. You know, we impose this on them, et cetera. But, you know, how many bankruptcies in the airline sector? The answer is zilch. Zero, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's in the Western world now that we have capitalism with Chinese characteristics. In the Western world now, the message is grow big, 
grow as, grow as fast as you can. Don't worry about returns on invested capital. As long as you grow big, you won't be allowed to go bust. Yeah, I, I, and it's you know when when you, when you look at the what you're talking about here with this this change in business model almost for the Chinese and the way they, they they're going to change their business model, they're going to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels. It, it all makes sense at a top level, but when you drill that down, the Achilles heel for China has always really been food prices. Right, that that's yeah. the thing that really they have to keep under control at all times. And obviously, we're seeing this kind of inflationary pulse around the world. And, and as you alluded to earlier on, we are based on a lot, largely on what China's doing. We are moving into a more inflationary environment worldwide by taking away that deflationary export that China has always done. What does this mean for China? Because obviously we're seeing food prices spike across the world. We're seeing energy prices spike across the world. And, and any attempt by China to, to go green is going to have the same result as it has everywhere else in the world, i.e. fossil fuel prices spike. How fragile is that for China and how do they try and manage that? I think that's a big that's going to be a big problem everywhere. I think the energy shortage is undeniably a big issue. And you know, beyond that, the food that comes on your plate, between 25% and a third is energy price, right? If you right. count the cost of fertilizer, the cost of transporting it, uh, you know, the cost of the tractors, like it all adds up. Um, so you know, whenever you have energy prices spiking and we have energy prices spiking, it's pretty unusual to not have food prices follow not shortly thereafter. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at cotton in the past month. I have, yeah. Uh, it's gone parabolic, right? So, you know, I think if you're if you're China, that's going to be a big concern. If you're anybody, that's going to be a big concern. You know, I wouldn't want to be Macron running in April with right. uh, gasoline price at two euros a liter and electricity bills that are going to be up 30 and 40%. If at the same time, food prices go up, that's, you know, you don't want to be yeah. a politician running, nope. running on that backdrop. <laughs> um, well, so, unless you can point the finger at the Chinese or you, know, you can point the finger at an external yeah, on enemy. The energy, on the energy, on the energy, it's tough to point the finger at the Chinese though. No, right? you're right. Russia it's, maybe, but no, yeah, not the yeah, Chinese. you can point the finger at Russia. You can point the finger maybe at Saudi Arabia, say these, these bastards should be pumping more, et cetera. But yeah. like, you can't blame China for the energy price. And I think most people will realize, hold on, this bloody energy price is our own doing. It's all these green investments yeah. that we've made that haven't been as productive as we'd hoped they would, they would be. And meanwhile, we've done not, no investments in oil and natural gas for five or 10 years. So, I mean, that, that one isn't that hard to understand. No. So, you know, how will people uh, deal with the food prices? Well, China's got one, I think, one big advantage, and this goes back to the not bailing out of Evergrande. If you're China and you worry about food prices and you worry about accelerating inflation, the only real thing you can do about it is let your currency go up, right? I mean, right. like this, any food, any food you import, if the wheat you import from Australia and Canada or the beef you import, et cetera, if it goes up 10, 20%, but you let your currency go up 10%, then, then that's that. Then, right. you don't have, then you don't have a, a price increase problem. So as you get inflation around the world, the big question will be, you have countries that can allow their currency to go up and they can deal with the inflation with a strong currency. And that will therefore mean that you don't have social disturbances. And then you have the countries where as commodity prices go up and as inf inflation goes up, their currencies will go down and that will make a bad situation worse. Yeah. So China wants to make sure that it's in the right bucket 
not in the wrong bucket. Um, and I think that's why you can, you, you know, you when you look at the Chinese Evergrande thing, maybe China's already thinking a move ahead here and saying, well, look, if, if we bail them out, the renminbi will bear the brunt of that adjustment yeah. because that's what, you know, the, the currency, the exchange rate all too often is the first variable of adjustment. It's the easiest variable of adjustment. But in, in a deflationary world, you're very happy for your currency to go down. In an inflationary world, having your currency go down is a bloody disaster. Yeah. Yeah, particularly for all into, the things you want to import. Yeah, you get into a bad spiral. Well, sorry, especially if you're a commodity importer. If you're a commodity yeah. exporter, you don't have to worry as much. So if you're Brazil, like if your commodity goes down as commodity prices go up, if your currency goes down, it's like whatever. If you're China, it's a problem. If you're the U.S., you know the U.S. is a big commodity producer. They produce their own food. They produce their own energy. They don't have to worry too much about the dollar going down. China doesn't have that luxury. So is China? Far enough along because it feels like this this kind of has maybe come a couple of years too soon. You know, they're not maybe they're not quite ready for this inflationary pulse to come through in terms of adjusting for it because their 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 export model is is kind of trying to be repurposed. Has it come too soon for them, or are are they able to withstand this? Do you think? I think they're able to withstand this. I think you know. Uh... But I mean, time will tell. I think that's the big that's the big gamble. But you know, China's trade surpluses remain very healthy, right? Mm-hmm. They've got a trade surplus of fifty to sixty, seventy billion a month. They're getting roughly twenty billion a month in, in government bond inflows from because China is now the only country in the world offering positive real rates. Positive yields, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And, well, positive nominal and real yields. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, bond investors who like positive real yields don't have a lot of places to go. <laughs> And most of the bond investors, I think, are partial to positive real yield. Yeah, so it's an old-fashioned <laughs> idea, but yeah. Um, and so, um, and especially positive real yields in an appreciating currency, right? And so, yeah, you might say, well, you know, you have to hold your nose because, you know, it's investing in China, et cetera. But uh, it goes back to the discussion we were having. You know, are you, on the one hand, if you're a bond investor today, you have two choices. You can... Get positive real yields in China and hold your nose, option one. Or option two, you can give your capital to the US or France or Germany or any one of these guys, and in essence, help a system that promises the capital destruction of rentiers to endure. Yeah. Right? So you're basically promoting long-term policies that you know cannot possibly work. So it's it's a bit of a Hobson's choice, you could say. It's like, anyways, uh, going back to it. So China today, they're getting what, fifty billion a month in trade surpluses, at least twenty billion a month in bond inflows. So that's you know seventy coming in. So that's a good you know good tailwind for currency strength. So I think that gives them a good cushion in this in, in inflationary era that is unfolding. The other thing that you know. You know, yes, it has happened too soon, and that China isn't self-dependent uh, on energy. It's not self-dependent on semiconductors. It's not self-dependent on food. But I don't think it will be in two years' time either, right? Um, right, right. It's uh, all those things are going to need to keep importing for for a long time to come. Meanwhile, you know, China is independent in everything else, in every manufactured good, in every. So what's going to happen, for example, now that they're cutting back on the production of steel, now that they're cutting back on the production of petrochemicals, of plastics, all these things, is that, you know, whatever they produce 
you'll find it in China. You just won't find it in the Western right. world anymore. So, you know, if you need to buy plastic toys for your kids for this Christmas, you're not going to find them. Now you could yeah. say, well, maybe it's good. They'll move back to wooden toys, but yeah, it's going to be a tough Christmas. Well- well, I to say, rentier sounds so much better when said with a French accent. I have to say, we, we butcher every time. But, but you know, it's interesting what you said there because, it, it, again, it comes back to this idea that uh, you have to reshape the narrative, particularly in the West. And so what we've seen in the West has been an awful lot of direction towards what's going on in Xinjiang, for example. Yep. That's been a big, big, big focus of Western media. Since when? Well, no, precisely the point. That, that has yep. come up since the tensions have arisen between the two countries. And, and as you say, when when you look at the Chinese bond market, you look at the appreciation, you look at the, the good parts as an investor of China, there is a clear escalation of direction towards focusing on human rights, focusing on yep. non-finance related things. How, how does that, how is that viewed from on the ground in China? Because look, these, there are satellite images, there are pictures, yeah. there, there, what we're arguing over here is whether something is a re-education camp or a concentration camp with the Uyghurs, yep. right? So so ha- how do you frame that part of the discussion? Because it's important to have. Oh, no, it's very, very important to have. Again, I don't want to sound cynical or an apologist. Again, I just, I'm just saying, look, imagine you're in Xi Jinping's shoes. If you're in Xi Jinping's shoes, you've been ghastly to your minorities for decades, right? You've been ghastly to the Uyghurs, you've been ghastly to the Tibetans, You've been ghastly to the Mongols. I mean, and there's, there's, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Then you build a pipeline through Xinjiang to basically get more natural gas and more oil from Kazakhstan and Russia so that you're no longer dependent as much on import energy. And then all of a sudden, all across the Western press, you get articles about how terrible you are to the Uyghurs. But you've been terrible to the Uyghurs this whole time. Yeah. Uh, it's just now that all of a sudden there's a pipeline, now they care. I mean, again, I'm, I think that's if you're in Xi Jinping's shoes, you think, oh, okay, there we go. Uh, I'm trying to gain energy independence and I'm being given grief for it. You know, why do they care about the Uyghurs and not the Tibetans? Yeah. Uh, I'm being at least as horrible to the Tibetans as, as I am to the Uyghurs. So, you know, that's again, and this sort of it, I think all this ends up feeding into the paranoia. And again, I'm not negating the fact that the Uyghurs are being persecuted and, uh, and, 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 and any of these things. It's uh, the time frame of when, when we start looking at these things is, is interesting. And I think feeds into a greater narrative within China that the West is out to get us. Right. Uh, right. And all, all these narratives you know, as this occurs, amplifies these three trends, these three core trends that are unfolding in China today, the, the need to make the renminbi its own sort of trade currency, the need to be independent on a semiconductor front, and the need to reduce dependency on, on sea imported energy, which of course, this need to reduce dependency on, on sea imported energy, it's great news for Russia, great news for Kazakhstan. Yeah. And here, you know, the, the perhaps the, the one sort of positive thing that's happened if you're China in your U.S. relationship over the past few months is the U.S. exit from Afghanistan, right? Because now all of a sudden, now it would be an engineering feat beyond all engineering feats, but now all of a sudden you have the hope that one day you could have a pipeline that goes from Iran straight, straight through Afghanistan into China, at which point 
you know, you could basically pump as much oil into China because China could absolutely plow. Iran actually has huge reservoirs. It has a very antiquated uh, oil infrastructure. Yeah, You bypass, you know, uh, U.S. controlled Saudi. I mean, you know, the departure from Afghanistan was amazing news for Iran, terrific news for China, pretty bad news for Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah. And on this, if you're a U.S. ally in Asia, let's say you're Japan, you're South Korea, you're Taiwan, the departure from Afghanistan is sort of a head scratcher because you've got the U.S. saying China is our biggest rival. You know, our policy goal is now to slow down China's rate of innovation. You know, we think they're a bad actor, you know, all these things. And then you abandon the military, the, the one set of military bases that you actually have on China's border, right? Because Afghanistan shares a border with China. Yeah. So, you know, Bagram Air Base, as the drone flies, was 400 kilometers, is 400 kilometers from, from China. So, you know, if ever there was, there is a conflict with China, the U.S. just gave up the option of having a two-front war, of coming in on both sides. Right. It seems, it seems short-sighted, right? Just because you wanted to bring 2,500 guys home. If you're Taiwan, if you're South Korea, if you're Japan, you look at this and you think the U.S. isn't very serious here. Like, you know, why... Why give that up? This was an amazing piece of real estate. Now, granted, it was an expensive piece of real estate. Yeah. But if you really think that China is this massive threat, that's a piece of real estate you don't give up. Yeah. No. It's it's if you're playing risk, you definitely definitely wouldn't give it up. That's yeah. for sure. But but I, I mean, you know what it reminds me? It reminds me. France in up until 1936 occupied the Ruhr, uh, which is sort of the you know the. The, the, the part of Germany on the other side of Alsace. We, right. were, we were occupying that. It was like a nice buffer up until 1936. And then we decided we had the uh, socialist government come in and they decided that, you know, and it was a very costly occupation. And the socialist government came in in 1936 and said, yeah, you know what? That occupation of the Ruhr, it cost too much money that we could be using for better, better things, uh, social benefits at home. So they evacuated the Ruhr back into, back yeah. into Alsace. Turns out it was a false cost saving. Um, <laughs> yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, you think? Four years later, that decision turned out to be quite expensive. Yeah, no kidding. You just just quickly fill it with with manufacturing <laughs> facilities that manufacture things that can drop ordnance on you across the border. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, it, but it's funny these decisions. You know, they, they get made, but uh, one of the other key decisions uh, has obviously been around Hong Kong, and that's yeah. something that, as, as you pointed out earlier, it gives them a capital market in its yep. current form but a lot of the changes being made in hong kong put that that idea of it being a, a western style capital market under great threat how have you found the changes there because obviously you guys are running a business in hong kong and i you know i've spoken to independent research providers in hong kong smaller ones than you guys who are you know very concerned about about having to write about china from within hong kong now what what what's the real situation there for for those of us that only get our news from the Western media and talk about how big a disaster this this potentially could be? What are the sensitivities around Hong Kong now on the ground? They're definitely higher. Look, right now the mood in Hong Kong is is pretty grim. You've had the you know it's it's been a really rough five years. You know yeah. you've, you had you had the demonstrations that blocked down the city. You've had COVID. Uh, you've had the Chinese takeover. You've had COVID. Now, I think it's it's hard to unpack these different things, but all these different things put together, it, it wears you out, right? And one of the big issues today of running, a, a, I think, and it will, con 
you know, the, it will continue being an, an issue is that the, uh, you know, I think of all, it depends who you are in society, of course. Uh, but, you know, the COVID response, I think it's crushed Hong Kong. You know, the, the reality yeah. is you can't really be an expat living in Hong Kong anymore. When each time you want to come in and out, it's a three-week quarantine. And, and it's not quarantine at home. It's in a government hotel, yeah. you know, where you can't open a window, where, you know, you can't even get daylight because all the, the windows have like film on them to prevent the sunlight from coming in to keep the AC bills down. So, you know, you can't have kids that go to college abroad or go to, or if you have elderly parents, you can't visit them, all these things. So the mood, the mood in Hong Kong is extremely grim. Uh, no, no doubt about it. So Hong Kong, you know, I think will will definitely, you know, continue changing. I think it'll be a, a hard, harder place to attract expats to work. That that sort of balance that you and I have known for 20 years will, will evolve. But you know, whether we as a business feel we can't criticize China, no. Then again, you know, we've had an office in Beijing for the past yeah, yeah, sure. 15 years. So if they wanted to come and get us, they could come and get us in Beijing. You know, I go to Beijing, well, before COVID, I'd go to Beijing at least every three months. So if they wanted to come and pick me up at the airport, they wouldn't have right. They didn't need to pick me up in Hong Kong. They could always pick me up there. You know, one of the things that was made pretty clear to us when, when we started in Beijing was that as long as we wrote in English for a foreign audience, they didn't really care. Okay. The reality is as soon as you publish in Chinese for a China domestic audience, then you enter into a completely different, um, right. into a different lane where they're going to care a whole lot more about what you write and what, what you say. So, you know, what was made always clear to us is as long as you stay in your lane of catering to a foreign audience, you know, look, for example, at, um, you know, our, our mutual friend, Michael Pettis, right? Mm -hmm. He's never been shy about criticizing China, no, right? No, very true. Uh, you wouldn't call him a China apologist. He's based in Beijing. In fact, he teaches at Tsinghua yeah. uh, or at Beida, I can't remember which. Uh, he teaches at one of the two big China universities. So, you know, technically, he's on the government payroll. Um, so they could say at any time, hey, we're going to cut you off. They've never done that, right? Even though he's written, you know, very critical pieces over the years. But again, he stayed in his lane. All these pieces were always in English meant for a foreign audience, uh, more than a domestic audience. So I'm, I'm not too worried. I'm not worried about them coming, coming after us. But that's on the business side. On the living side, there's no doubt that Hong Kong has become a harder place to live and mm -hmm. to operate from. You know, the, the whole zero COVID policies that most of Asia, but then you could say the same thing for a lot of other places in Asia, but the, yeah. the whole zero COVID policies that most of Asia has embraced, I think is a disaster. The problem is most people in Asia thinks it's been terrific. Most people in Asia, most people in China, uh, and definitely people in the Chinese government think this has been a huge success. Right. Um, right. That's been a big success. You know, the Western world has had lots of deaths. We've had no deaths. This is, uh, you know, we've we've stopped all the people going abroad to buy to go to Milan and Paris to buy Hermes bags and uh, and uh, Gucci shoes. It's uh, this is a good thing. You know, this has worked out really well for us. Our trade balance has never been higher. As far as they're concerned, this this has been this has been a big win. So, so what about that brings us to nicely onto Taiwan because that you know that's the other 
uh, situation about which there's so much ink being spilled and uh, it's, t- it's tough to find any middle ground on it. It's either, uh, you know, it's a war going to happen tomorrow, and, but I know you're in the other camp. You, 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 you think that there's no way that China will, will invade Taiwan. So to talk about the rationale behind that, and I know a lot of it is, is to do with uh, semiconductors, but, but explain why you think that that's, that's extremely unlikely. Well, the first thing to acknowledge is that uh, the Chinese army is completely untested, right? It's yeah. it's not been it's not been in battle really ever, and so if you're Xi Jinping, it would be a hell of a gamble to launch your untested army into a war that you could potentially lose uh, or you could potentially do very badly in. You know, planning an invasion such as this one, coordination of air force, navy, uh, landing forces, etc., is it's a hard thing to do, you know, before, you know, the, the, the biggest such operation in the world was D-Day, which took a year and a half to plan, right? Yeah. Uh, you, you don't just ruck up one morning and say, you know what, I feel like invading Taiwan. Um, right. Well, that was 20, that was 20 miles across open sea. That wasn't 180 yeah. kilometers. Or- yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, there's a, there's a, there's a hole and across an open sea that you in essence controlled. While here you're going to be facing U.S. submarines, U.S. frigates, Taiwanese frigates, potentially Japanese frigates. I mean, you know, militarily, you might win. You might win. But for, with an untested army, it's a big roll of the dice. Now, yeah. it's all the more roll of the dice since you have to acknowledge that, you know, in all your soldiers are kids that are one and done. Right, China's had a one-child policy forever. So yeah, if you point. kill a, if you kill a bunch of kids, if you have four kids and you lose one in a war, it's very sad, of course. But if you only have one, it's an absolute disaster. So you launch a war that, with lots of deaths and that you lose, you don't survive. Like yeah. not only does Xi Jinping not survive, but perhaps the Chinese Communist Party doesn't survive. So it's a hell of a gamble, right? So if you look, frame it in this way, it looks like it's it's not a great gamble to make. Uh, so that's that's number one. Number two, why would you make this gamble? You know, why? what do you get out of it? The idea is, what does Taiwan have that you want? The semiconductors. Really, that's that, that's really all Taiwan has that, that, that you want. Now, grabbing the semiconductors, can you get them in an invasion? It's not like oil wells. Like, you know, if, if you invade Kuwait, you grab the oil. If you invade Taiwan, by the time you get to the TSMC plant, they've most likely been blown up. Um, and the TSMC engineers are on a plane to uh, to San Francisco or on a plane to Tokyo. So what have you really won? Uh, economically, you've won nothing. And economically, it's a disaster for you because now you've got Japan, South Korea, US, Australia. No, nobody trades with you any longer. Uh, so you have an economic embargo. You have an economic collapse. And again, what have you gained from that? You've gained nothing. Meanwhile, if what you want out of Taiwan is the semiconductors. I have a Russian friend uh, who, who likes to joke, if, if we'd known that we could, you know, buy Courchevel, uh, Saint-Tropez, Marbella, London, and Paris, we wouldn't have spent so much on weapon for 50, weapons for 50 years. Um, it's like <laughs> the, uh, um, and the same is true for Taiwan. If what you want is the, the TSMC engineers, rather than invade, it's a whole lot cheaper to go to these guys and say, hey, how much you make? You make okay. You make uh, two hundred grand a year. How do you feel about six hundred grand? How do you feel about seven hundred grand? Yeah. Uh, and guess what? That's exactly what's happening today. 
That's exactly what's happening today. They're going around with a big checkbook and signing up every semiconductor engineer in Taiwan and telling them to move to Shanghai. Now, the reality is, you know, the cultural shift from moving from Taipei or Kaohsiung to to uh, to Shanghai, you know, the same language, it's the same food. Uh, you're an hour flight back home. Uh, now that you have, you don't have to go through Hong Kong anymore, and there's direct flights. Yeah. It's as much of a cultural shift as moving from Vancouver to Seattle, frankly. Um, yeah. it's, um, and so that's what's unfolding. That's what's unfolding right now. Today, 25% of male Taiwanese passport holders live on the mainland. So, you know, it's, they're, they're going to buy what they want rather than invade what they want, is, is, is the point I'm making. And, and it's already happening. What are the miscalculations that could be made here? Well, I think the, big, the yeah the big the big risk, the massive risk. Do you remember early in the when Bush just came into power, there was uh, a U.S. sort of observation plane clipped a, a yeah, Chinese yeah, yeah, fighter, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the Chinese fighter died, and the U.S. plane had to land uh, in like emergency land in Hainan Island, and. The U.S. Uh, pilots were kept hostage for like ten or twelve days or something, and then, yeah, then they were sent home after ten or twelve days of the the Chinese complaining about their uh, their uh, space being uh, invaded, etc. But all in all, nothing happened, right? I mean, well, yes, the, the poor Chinese fighter died, but there weren't wider repercussions. Yeah. What if that happened today? Right. That's the big risk at a time when there's more, more planes than ever. When there's yeah, more boats more. than ever, when there's less communications between the two sides than, than ever, that's the big risk, right? That as China continues to provoke by sending uh, sorties over Taiwan and you know flying over Taiwan and doing all these things to sort of rattle the cage and push the buttons, as this continues to unfold, that at some point you get an accident. That's my fear. Um, I, I don't fear that Xi Jinping wakes up one morning and says, all right, Green lights. Here we go. We're invading. Yeah. Here we go. We're invading Taiwan. I really don't. I do fear that you know, given all these provocations, you could get into a bad situation where one thing leads to another. That's how you get into a bad scenario, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's normally how it, these things happen, right? But on a domestic front, given that we've spoken about all the the moves Xi Jinping has made, what's his biggest risk there? Where where could he potentially miscalculate on the, the domestic front? I'm not too worried on the domestic front, to be honest, because I think there was a time for sort of riots and revolutions in China. It was really in the late 90s uh, when you had a much younger population and when you had big SOE reform and China went you know, back to back years where they fired 30 million industrial workers, you know, guys that had hammers and, yeah. uh, and jack saws and, and everything else. You know, there you could have had some, some, some bad outcomes. You know, today... You know, the whole population is one child, right? So as soon as there's a riot, the, the parents bring bring their kids home. Right. Uh, the second thing is the population is aging. Uh, you know, throwing stones at the police is a young man's game. Uh, you and I, you and I have passed. You and I have passed. Uh, oh, passed, I can barely get passed. my arm above shoulder height anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. You're, well, the, the stones you're going to throw at the police aren't going to go very far. Right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's the same in China. You know, as you age. As and here you've had a little bit like the Thatcher revolution in China, right? Thatcher's big insight was that look, let's because if you remember in the 70s and early 80s, there were the Brixton riots, and yeah, I grew up in those, yeah, absolutely, all all these things. And 
Thatcher's insight was let's privatize the council flats. And when everybody owns their flat, they'll make, keep them nice. We'll, we'll you know, private, privatize them at a, at a cheap, at a cheap price. And as people move from being renters to being owners, they have a stake in society. And basically people who, have, who worry about paying the mortgage or the mortgage don't throw stones at the police. Right. Well, it's the same story in China. You know, they've basically transformed, like basically most of the urban population now owns a flat in one way or the other. So that's an entire population that's more worried about paying the mortgage than than about upending uh, society. Yeah. So, I mean, so you, so you, you think that the, the Evergrande situation obviously is, I say contained, but it's it, it's in a, a very specific set of, of of the economy. You don't think that has a danger of rippling through, that the, the miscalculation there is a potential problem? No, I, I think as long as the 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 deposit holders, the guys who you know put right. down their 20, yeah. 30% okay. savings, I think as long as those guys are made whole. Uh, and by the way, you saw that pretty quickly, right? You started to see some demonstrations of some of these guys, like yes. 2,000 guys here, 3,000 guys there, taking over the Evergrande office, taking the management as hostages, all these things. And in essence, the government came out and said, look, you guys are going to be made whole. And this is dissipated. And so right now they're, they're, they're waiting to see how they're going to be made whole. But in essence, the view is we're going to be, the government has told us we're going to be made whole. So these are the guys that might riot, you know, the bankers, yeah. the, the, the bankers who lent to Evergrande, they're not going to riot. No, no, that, that, would, that would be a, <laughs> that would be a career ending decision. I'm sure. One more thing that I, I want to cover before we, before we wrap up and that's um, the, the situation with cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular in China and their, their kind of moves to shut down the miners. How much of that is, dictated by capital flow concerns, uh, how much of it is political and and how genuine is that that desire to shut down crypto? Because obviously there are there are, again, there are multiple uh, thoughts on it out there that that uh, the, the Chinese as state actors have a huge stake in Bitcoin, but policy decisions would suggest that not to be the case. What, what's your sense about what's happening with cryptocurrencies in China? So I'm not sure I'm the best guy to talk about crypto. No, and I'm not either. Yeah. I, but I, I'm sure in, with China's concern, you you know more than yeah. I do. So I'm I'm yeah. just interested to get another perspective. Yeah, I, I'm uh, I'm always embarrassed when I talk about cryptos because, you know, here's here's been the biggest bull market in history, and and I've absolutely not participated in it. So it's uh, for me, it's more a source of shame than uh, <laughs> than than anything. Um, so um, having said that. I am scratching my head. I'm not sure I have a great explanation as to you know why why turn around and, and ban bitcoins. I'm uh, I'm not sure they're really worried about capital outflows in, into Bitcoin, partly because you know the renminbi has been decently strong. It's been very strong the past 18 months. If the renminbi had been going down, then you could say okay they're they're worried about capital outflows. But the renminbi has been going up, so I don't think it's that. Is it? Are they sort of laying the groundwork? A big part of their I think strategy to internationalize the renminbi, to make the renminbi a credible currency, is the launch of this this digital renminbi coming up in uh, yeah. with with the Olympics, right? I mean, they're testing it now in Shenzhen and in Shanghai, but the view is they're the, the rollout's going to happen with the Beijing Olympics in in uh, in February, and and the view here is is pretty simple: is they basically aim for the digital renminbi to be the Apple to the U.S. dollars of Microsoft, and by that I mean that you know up. Currencies are like operating systems. Uh, you know, you use Microsoft because everybody else uses Microsoft. Yeah, uh, it's it's not because you're particularly fond of the of, of the company, but they make a good product and everybody else uses it, so you use it as well. Well, the same is true for reserve currencies, right? The reason we all use the U.S. dollar is because everybody else uses the U.S. dollar, and 
to replace Microsoft, you don't need to be marginally better. You need to be massively better, right? Because it's got to be everybody does it at once. And same with the US yeah. dollar. Now, you know, 10 years ago, people would look at Apple and say, well, you know, Apple, or 15 years ago, they'd say Apple, they make nice gadgets and it's, you know, what they do is nice, et cetera. But Apple will never be able to compete for the corporate IT spend at General Motors or at Goldman Sachs or at Kraft Heinz or wherever else. And so, you know, Apple was training at seven times PE because it was like basically a manufacturing of cool devices and that, and that was it. Yeah. Um, and then Apple basically said, you're right. We're never going to compete with a corporate IT spend. So instead of trying to compete with Microsoft for the corporate IT spend, we're going to create our own parallel system. So they launch iOS and they go straight to the consumer with iOS. And that's exactly what China's doing with the digital currency. They're basically saying, we're never going to compete with the US dollar for the big transfers, for et cetera, but we're going to go straight to the consumer so that in the world of tomorrow, the Indonesian entrepreneur can go to Singapore and pay for his taxi, his hotel, his restaurant with his phone, with his, the digital renminbi that's on his phone, hereby avoiding SWIFT, by avoiding doing mm -hmm. exchange rates through the US dollar, by paying exchange rate fees, et cetera. And so, so that's the view. You know, the digital renminbi will be the equivalent of, of the new Apple to, to the US dollar, Microsoft. So maybe they need to make sure that Bitcoin isn't that. You know, so now the, the, the best way to make sure Bitcoin isn't that is to make sure that in one of the world's biggest markets with 1.4 billion people, Bitcoin isn't there. Right. Uh, that, you know, if you want digital currencies in China, it has to be the digital RMB and nothing else. So they're basically adopting the same approach that they did to the internet platforms. If you remember when, you know, Google was launched and Amazon was launched and Facebook was launched, they basically said, yeah, you know what? We're going to do our own. You guys can't come into China. We're going to build a great wall and we're going to have Alibaba, not Amazon. We're going to have Baidu, not Google. We're going to have Weibo, not Twitter and so on, so on and so forth because they can, because they have a, you know, the, the critical size of the market. Maybe they're just replicating the same thing where, you know what? You guys keep your digital currency. You can keep your Bitcoin if you want. We're going to, uh, we're going to do our own uh, one that we control. I think that's what's unfolding. Fascinating. Hey, I can't thank you enough for actually taking the time and effort to write me Pleasure. that initial email. No, because <laughs> a lot of people will no, but a lot of people will will read something and they think, oh, it's nonsense. And then and then just that's it, right? So so having this chance to kind of kick through it all with you is is hugely appreciated, genuinely, genuinely. And um, you know, I, I know the listeners will will really enjoy hearing that perspective as, as well. You know, I, I as I said at the beginning, this it's so easy to get caught up in a limited perspective on China and assume that anyone on the other side of it because of the polarization that's happened is not worth listening to. And I think the absolute opposite is true. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Great to see you. All right, mate. Likewise. I'll see you again soon. And come and visit. I will. You count on me. You're going to wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> Take care, Louis. Take care. Thanks, man. I never get tired of listening to Louis. He's, he's articulate. He's smart. And he has a pragmatism about China, which I find absolutely invaluable. When Louis tells me that my perspective on China is wrong, you better believe I want to hear why, so I can refine and retest my own thoughts on a subject about which I know he has far greater experience than me. 
China is going to be an important part of so many investment decisions we all have to make in the years to come. So being able to avail oneself of the thoughts and opinions of someone like Louis Garve is just a great weapon to have in our arsenal. And I'm extremely grateful to him for spending that time with me. That's all for me for another episode. I'll be back again soon. Thanks so much for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.